Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of Washington. The Senate and Senate Democrats released the CIA torture report. What is contained in the report? Does this hurt our intelligence community? What is the fallout? A New York City grand jury fails to indict officers for the Gartner death on Staten Island. Is this confirmation that our country really needs bigger dialogue on race relations? And Rolling Stone's credibility is called into question after a story detailing sexual abuse on campus at UVA. How bad is the damage? And is this a blow to victims' rights? This, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, ironically, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation, former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Good afternoon, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, and longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to directly, directly across the table from me, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer, Washington insider, and a very handsome, distinguished, factual fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, gentlemen. And to my right, ironically, he is the longtime Democratic political operative and bar-certified attorney in the District of Columbia in the great state of New York. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. I feel like it's going to be nothing but torture here today. Wow. Really? (laughs) Really? You're going to start off that way? Good Good deal. Well, okay. I'll bite. I'll bite. Speaking of torture, funny you should bring that up. Breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Earlier this morning, the Senate Intelligence Committee, led by Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein from California, issued what is now being referred to as the CIA Torture Report. It contains several, several very disturbing allegations about the enhanced interrogation techniques used by the Central Intelligence Agency and other intelligence operatives in theater, out of country, and it it does not paint a very pretty picture uh, of uh, what we have done to uh, those in our custody that after 9-11 were supposed to give us viable, actionable intelligence. The bottom line on this 
is that the uh, the report itself basically says, and we're going to we're going to highlight some of the uh, the big surprising revelations. But the, the 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 big part of this is that when we look at uh, what came out, there are conflicting reports that intelligence operatives were saying that no good actual intelligence actually was resulted from uh, any enhanced interrogation techniques used by operatives in interrogating these prisoners. Uh, it is a it is a very partisan report, according to many in the Republican Party. Uh, Vice President Cheney came out and said that the report was, quote, a bunch of hooey. Uh, President, uh, former President George W. Bush came out and said that basically this is a slam against our intelligence community, calling those who operate in the intelligence community patriots. However, uh, this does also look at the Senate Democrat side, Dianne Feinstein, saying that this is part of the reason why civilian oversight is needed in these type of operations to prevent what she's calling human rights violations. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. We kind of knew that there was going to be a report coming out of the Senate Intelligence Committee probably before the end of the year. That buzz has been going around for a few weeks now. But it seems to me that, according to some of the folks I've talked to on the Hill, that the Democrats kind of went off the reservation in some instances. That you know they kind of they kind of led the effort. It was Democratic staff that did a lot of these interviews. Republican staff wasn't privy to a lot of the information that was gathered for this report. Does this seem unbiased and and in a report that you would have seen in your days in the Senate, or does this seem like a Democratic pull to what some are calling an insult to George W. Bush and his administration? Well, it's. It's, I've never seen anything quite like it, but it, 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 the circumstances are very strange. First of all, the, the actual report is over 6,000 pages. The summary, which is being re, re, released, is about 500 pages, which means there's an awful lot of detail in there that is going to be embarrassing and has got Secretary of State John Kerry, among others, at the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, very, very concerned about possible backlash around the world aimed at Americans. And uh, uh, God forbid we have some horrendous incidents. Um, the, the, the story of the report itself is, is also interesting. The Intelligence Committee is one of the few committees that has a very long history of working extremely well uh, across the partisan boundaries. Um, it, most of what they do is done in secret, uh, and their staffs are all people who have top-level security clearances. It's not a bunch of political hacks, and the members themselves take it very seriously. But what happened a few years ago is Republicans on that committee balked. They stopped. They hesitated at this report it was, as it was going forward. They didn't like the way it was shaping up, and they said, we don't want to be part of this. So, you know, in fairness to the Democrats, they said, we'd love you to be part of it, but we're not going to let you stop it. We're going to move forward with it. What that has resulted in is a Democrats-only report. There's a Republican rebuttal associated with it. There's a CIA rebuttal associated with it. Um, and, uh, and then this whole big question, okay, you have this 6,000.
you know, thousand word newspaper stories about it. Should it have been released? And those are all, those are all interesting questions. I myself would like to have seen them. Hold off on the release, or not release 500 pages. Maybe release a, a, a 200-page summary, perhaps. Well, maybe 20-page summary. Okay, fair yeah. enough. But Dan Lepner, when when we when we look at it, I mean, the Democrats had the leadership on the Intelligence Committee through uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein. It is obviously something that the Intelligence Committee and committee leadership felt needed to be investigated, and it also seems that. As Alan pointed out, Republicans had an opportunity to come on board. But at, at the point when the Republicans said, look, we're going down a really rocky road here. Do we really want to put this out? And the Democrats still went forward. Is this a matter of you know the Democrats doing the right thing in this instance? Or, again, is this some sort of political maneuvering before the end of the 113th Congress? Um it's not political maneuvering, considering how partisan this city is. Uh, the the lame duck session of Congress is about the closest you can get to non-political maneuvering in D.C. as you can get. Um, and I also want to take uh, respond to the partisan nature of this. From the reports I've seen, both Lindsey Graham and John McCain have been in favor of the report coming out and talking about exactly what we did. And I'm going to paraphrase Lindsey Graham. Uh, way back uh, when he was talking about Abu Ghraib. One of the best moments of true political courage that I've seen on, uh, on, on Nightline when he was interviewed talking about whether or not the Abu Ghraib pictures were also a tremendous embarrassment to this country as far as what we permitted to happen under our watch uh, for uh, the auspices of, of intelligence gathering, which was later proved not necessarily useful. Lindsey Graham, while going off the talking points he was given, suddenly left the talking points in the interview and said and something along the lines of, we are not the greatest country in the world because we always do right. We are the greatest country in the world because when we do wrong, we let it be known and we try and fix it. But, and unless you bring light to it, you can't actually do it. But Bob Hines, you know... There's a fine line between going off of what uh, Dan described uh, Senator Lindsey Graham's comments are and actually what is still a matter of national security. Right now we have the FBI, DHS, and DOD putting all resources on higher alert as a result of the release of this. Uh, the State Department has put in embassies and the Marine Protection Units that guard them on a much higher alert feeling some sort of retaliation as a result of this report. This is, as Alan pointed out, a very, very top secret operation that happens inside the intelligence community. Would it have not have made sense to at least let the top secret nature of this stay top secret instead of releasing it for public opinion? I think that once, let's put it this way, once that report has been written, and there's no way it's not going to come out, whether it comes out because you want it out or because somebody, somebody leaked it. leaks a copy. I mean, it's going to be out there. Uh, as Alan indicated, it was fundamentally uh, written by the Democrats, uh, and um, obviously it has a uh, somewhat a uh, – it, 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 it's not particularly complementary to the Republican administration at the time. 
Well, we also have to understand something. I mean, you know, and I'm not in for a moment uh, supporting, you know, some of the things that that report shows. But it's also true to remember that, you know, this was 9-11. I mean, we had, we had, you know, New York, we had buildings falling down, people falling out of windows. It was a terrible thing. I don't think it, the country probably hadn't ever conceived that something like this could happen. I can understand how a lot of people would uh, would say, geez, you know, we, we everything we, we could possibly do to find out what was going on and who was doing it was we should have done. It's, it's, but it, it's, it's, I think it was right. You know, the fact the fact that the United States, uh, in an in official in official report of the United States government, is willing to say that this is a problem. This is what happened. We're not proud of it, but we're going to put it on the record. And that's that says a lot for what the way this country operates. We we screw things up, yes. But we're not. We don't hide it under the ground and point some some other finger at somebody else. But Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I think there's a question of degree here that 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 is important. Um, you know, notwithstanding the unfortunate fact that it was a that it was a Democrat staff only report, um, it's a report that 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 people spent years on. Um, the question is. What do you release from a report? In this, I would have asked if it had been a bipartisan report or just a, a, a Democratic report. Um, what do you release? And, and 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 Dan mentioned Abu Ghraib, and and I actually I I think that that Lindsey Graham is one of the great United States senators. We can talk about him on another time. And I completely agree with the sentiment that what sets us apart is that we acknowledge our mistakes. Pictures of Abu Ghraib circulating around the, around the globe cause Americans to die. Now, acknowledging that horrors were committed at Abu Ghraib, absolutely. Photos which admittedly were not released by the government here. These were crazy young people taking pictures circulating them, they got out there. If there had been a way to stop those photos, which I don't think there was, but if there had been a way to, I would have said stop them. And I feel that way about this report, which I have not read, but I'm hearing certain little anecdotes that are inflammatory. So the question is, how much information do you put out when you're acknowledging that you made mistakes, that you're hoping things don't happen like th this ever again, how much do you have to put out? How much detail? And we're going to learn in the coming days just how much detail is out there. And it's the detail often that is used to trigger or excuse violence against other persons, most particularly Americans serving overseas. That's but my fear. Dan Lipner? And I, I agree with Alan on part of that. However, the, the danger that is that this report might cause. And I have no doubt that that is true. But this goes into a larger question of what it is, and I, I mean this sincerely, what it is to be an American. It's not just my president when it's my guy in the White House versus your guy in the White House. The flag, if it's tarnished, it tarnishes all of us. And that cost is, now that this is being brought to the light of day, yeah, the, 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 the credit may have been run up someplace else, but we are all paying the freight on that. 
And it's not just the, the people in uniform overseas. This could very well have domestic terrorism uh, legs to it as well, considering we have people leaving this country to try and enjoy it. Are you suggesting, let me ask you this question. Are you suggesting, <clears throat> excuse me, are you suggesting that this might incite some of the lone wolf ISIS-induced uh, individuals in this country to rise up and start doing incidents like what we saw in Ottawa, Canada last month and what we saw uh, even as uh, late as last night at a synagogue in New York City, in Brooklyn? The answer is yes. I'm, I'm saying, knowing that is a possibility, the report still should come out because that's what we do. But but Carl Tuvin, we would one would think that the intelligence committee would have to weigh this option. Does the weight of getting the information out outweigh the possibility of the retaliatory or even the public safety danger that might come about as a result of releasing the information? Well, hopefully <clears throat> they considered it. Um, they just had some pictures on TV showing some people being waterboarded. Board of border, um, announcing that some people froze to death and other things like that, which and we'll talk about some of those details shortly. Which is which is inflammatory, and and I agree with with um, everybody who said that this could have a a real um, backlash at our people wherever they are. I mean, we had this woman overseas in. Uh, Iraq, who was attacked in a uh, bathroom, uh, leaving twins and a 13-year-old and a, a, a former husband. Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yeah. I mean, you know, it, this is happening all over the place. But we, Alan Moore, I mean, this is this also goes a lot deeper. I mean, the report details, if confirmed, is accurate. Uh, a situation where the folks in Langley were either not giving the full breadth of the picture of the program to civilian oversight or, in some instances, according to the report, misleading not just Congress and civilian oversight, but even the administration under President George W. Bush and Barack Obama. There, there are some serious allegations here about that exact question. What was the president told? Um, what was the vice president told? What was the National Security Council told? What was the congressional leadership told? And was it was it accurate? Was it purposefully inaccurate? Those are really, really serious charges. And it concerns me that we have this, we sort of have this impression, at least so far, without having read the report, that everybody was lying to each other. As there was some great grand conspiracy inside the CIA. I don't buy that. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not working inside the CIA, but those kinds of charges are really serious. And that there are two big things that the CIA is pushing back on very hard. One, the argument that there was never any useful intelligence gathered. Plenty of people say that is not true. What the president says, President Obama has said, is even if we got some useful intelligence, it wasn't worth the, the behaviors that brought it out. And that's, that's a more comfortable area uh, for, for me. But, but the, the other thing that the CIA is concerned about is people did things that were, they were told were lawful. 
They knew they were risky, and different people had different, uh, harsh, different, challenging feelings about what was going on, but they felt that it was lawful. And now they're being told it was torture, not enhanced interrogation, that it was not lawful, that it was wrong, and that the people who did it are, are culpable and and part of, if you will, this grand conspiracy. So we've got this challenge, and we've got a Congress who says, we didn't know. You've got plenty of people who say, wait a minute, Dianne Feinstein was a senior member of the Intelligence Committee. Nancy Pelosi was the speaker. She was the, the, the Democratic leader. We told them everything. That was going on. But according to them, but according to them, they're saying now. I'm not saying they didn't. All I'm saying is there's a whole other piece of this that they were told stuff. They were. Who knows exactly what they were told and what terms? Is this a situation of plausible deniability to the Democrats? I don't know. It's like nobody wants their hands dirty now with something that may not have worked that well and that 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 might have in fact been torture. So there's there's. It, it's complicated not so much with partisan politics as with self-serving desire to to have plausible deniability. Go ahead, Carl Tuvin. On Saturday, either Saturday or, or Sunday's paper, the person who was the head of this uh, this this activity said on said in, in an article that everyone in Congress was made aware of what they were doing. And uh, uh, Pelosi had said that at one point that she was she missed wasn't at a meeting. This fellow maintained she was at all the meetings. she was at the meeting. And this brings this brings up a much larger question. I mean, we're talking about even those who are cited in the report are now stating that what they stated to staff as part of the investigation was either taken out of context or flat out inaccurate in the way that it was portrayed inside the report. Bob Hines. What strikes me here is we have a situation which a report which was apparently written some time ago and has been, you know, massaged and whatnot has come out and there's a whole lot of people who knew a whole lot of things, or at least part of a whole lot of things. Now, everybody is sort of, uh, you know, ducking a little bit. I understand that. I understand that. And it, it, it's, it's, what it is clear to me is that uh, there's a lot more people who were aware of, of a lot of what was going on are now trying to, in effect, say, well, gee, I wasn't really there. But the fact is they were, and they and they would like not to be identified with the situation and it's 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 unfortunate that uh it's it's fortunate it's unfortunate that we're sit in a situation where we're going to be finger pointing back and forth which i abominate but the fact of the matter is the report's out let's deal with it dan lipner well i definitely hear you and this is a political town so keeping that in mind however it's also worth noting that Dealing with classified material is strictly an executive power. Congress gets to look at it. Congress gets to do all sorts of things with it. One thing Congress does not get to do with any of it is talk about it. When something is classified, it is strictly executive agency. I think Denise has something to chime in with on this. Carl Tuvin. Well, I think the one person 
who probably knows the most about this <clears throat> would be the former Vice President Cheney. And, and if anyone uh, has any knowledge uh, about what was going on, I'm sure it was him and Rumsfeld and others in the Defense Department. And I, I don't know if they're going to be, if this is going to go to any hearings or whatever, but I'd, I'd love to know, I know Cheney's put out a statement, but I really would love to know what some of those people uh, think about this report and, and what their reaction is. Well, uh, two two things actually. The three heads of the CIA that were uh, that were there during that time, I think, are were 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 even more directly involved. The thing I want to the the, the point I want to make is we we've got we've got a, a, a set of a set of facts that are in dispute. We've got events that occurred mostly under President George W. Bush uh, and his senior appointees. You got a CIA that disagrees with some of the fundamental findings and are worried about what's this mean for us in the future. Um, and people who are at the CIA now, I want you to think about this because we've talked about this in the past. That that it's I, I have no problem being very concerned about about torture, and I'll use that word and acknowledge that there's a debate about what constitutes torture or not. But what I said in the past is it's interesting to me how we have a 6,000-page report, a 500-page summary, uh, lots of concern about ramifications, about behaviors where we put enormous and perhaps illegal or immoral pressure on people to come forward. And now we're throwing the people under the bus who were carrying out what they thought, well, in their mind, were, were lawful orders. At the same time, our current preferred way to avoid enhanced interrogation is to use drones to kill people who have no ability to defend themselves. We kill them and it may be, and whoever happens to be with them. So imagine where we are. This is the president makes individual decisions every time they say, push the button, and God love him for being willing to to make those hard decisions. Could jump forward a few years when we're questioning our drone strategy and thinking who was who was targeting, who was identifying, who was pushing the who was making the decision to shoot, who was pushing the button, what was the collateral damage, and what is the damage to the people who were serving at the CIA or at the Defense Department, Defense Intelligence making the decisions to actually kill people. Well, There's I, a lot of broader implications And we're going, to, we're going to talk about that here when we come back. I want to take a break. When we come back, we'll introduce Denise Krupp to the table, and we'll talk further about some of the highlights coming out in this new report, the CIA torture report that was released earlier today by the Senate Intelligence Community for public consumption. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in 2 minutes, 45 seconds. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. 
the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've ever heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining the table right now is our very own Denise Krepp, uh, who's going to join the conversation again, recapping uh, this morning. The Senate Intelligence Committee did, in fact, release the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report, also now known as the CIA Torture Report, a Democratic staff-run report, which is getting a lot of pushback from Republicans and those in the intelligence community and causing a lot of fire inside the Beltway and inside the intelligence community. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the key findings that are being reported by our friends at Politico, our friends at Bloomberg and at the Washington Post. Uh, One of the ones that kind of struck me as being uh, almost confusing in many ways, is according to the report, quote, the CIA had little grip on basic details such as number of detainees in the program. According to agency records, at least 119 prisoners were involved in enhanced interrogation techniques, but CIA officials represented the number at less than 100. At least a sixth of the prisoners did not meet stated criteria. Sometimes senior officials were confused about where detainees were located Vice President Dick Cheney at one point ran into diplomatic trouble because he was unaware one country was hosting a so-called black site. Uh, Denise Krepp, does this strike you as odd? That I mean, they're basically saying that 
there was no absolute operational control of this back at Langley. Well, yeah, from the operational standpoint, of course, it's, it's a little hard to believe and say, wait a second, you don't know how many people you're torturing. Um, but considering what the years were that this was occurring, that doesn't surprise me either. I mean, it, you, when you're talking about 2003, 2004, and 2005, there was a lot of stuff moving, and it was all fast-paced. Does that excuse their inability to track people? No, but I understand what the off-tempo looked like. Uh, Bob Hines. It doesn't surprise me at all that the things were all screwed up. Because it is, you know, we didn't have a system in place, and we were we were as Denise says we were we were reacting to all kinds of different things in different places, and we didn't have any structure or organization structured, and we were doing it all ad hoc on the run, and we never stopped doing you know if we did it one way and one one project over here we kept going doing that and something else over here was going on and nobody was no organizational structure was set up in order to operate and on a more organized structural you know cross informationing so people knew what the whole score was i think that's the biggest problem we had we just we were so shocked and we just started doing everything we could possibly think of, and half of it didn't work at least. But, Dan Lipner, we're talking about an operation that effectively went into place after after September 11, 2001. So you're talking about a, a protocol that, in in some instances, is still being used 13 years later after September 11th, don't you think that that Langley and the and the leadership at CIA would have had the capability to at least put some sort of enhanced protocol in place to gain operational control of the uh, of the situation? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, that 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 would suggest anyone actually wanted their fingerprints on them, yes. and. At least, but, but President Bush defended the program. He was told about it. Apparently, even CNN just reported he didn't know quite everything. Some of the black issues weren't reported up to him as well. So this is probably the only point I will ever, ever as defend Dick Cheney. But to his credit, at least when he was backing this, he hasn't backed away from what's been done. As far as the washing of hands and the various different issues that have been attempted, and even the attempt at trying to find a legal solution, uh, the the one lawyer at the Justice Department, after several lawyers said no, and it, his name is escaping me, I don't know if anyone remembers his name, um, at the Justice Department, who basically said the Geneva Conventions don't apply to any of these folks that well, were... Well, according, according to... John Yu. John Yu is exactly right, but according to, according to the administration, they're saying, look, the Geneva Convention does not apply. These are non-uniform no, 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 combatants. No, 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 well, no, but John it took them a while to find John Yu, because there were several lawyers that said it does apply, and they were mysteriously moved off. But I think... The, the Denise? Okay, more let's, insight let's, let's just say that as a lawyer, I have respect for something that happens... Um, Oh, I, I, I think, Bob, part about the same time that you were in the Hill, wasn't it called the uh, the Midnight Massacre over yeah. at the uh, the Justice Department? Yes. And it's yes. when a, a certain president tried to get his way and um, ended up firing. In fact, I think it was firing. I think a lot of people quit before he found the magical lawyer that would give him what he wanted. Exactly um, right. And that's kind of what it sounds like here. Just because you want it doesn't mean it's, you know, it's legal. And I have some significant concerns with the legal justification that some folks were given. I, I think you go after the lawyers now. 
<laughs> Alan Moore. I feel a duty. <laughs> it was the October Massacre. The special prosecutor that was brought in to investigate the Watergate was a man named Archibald Cox, a very distinguished professor from Harvard. He negotiated his role with the then Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, a very distinguished public servant. Richardson said to, to Cox, you have my word, I leave you alone, unless and until you do something to break the law. The president didn't like what Cox was doing. He ordered Elliot Richardson to fire Cox. Richardson said, I can't fire Cox. I gave him my word. I can't do it. I would have to resign first. And it wasn't Nixon, obviously. It was Haldeman, if my, my memory serves, the, the chief of staff, saying, you have to fire him. That's a presidential order. Then I resign. William Ruckelshaus was the deputy attorney general, and Ruckelshaus said, if you're going, I'm going. And I think Ruckelshaus was even involved, another distinguished uh, uh, longtime public servant. Those two went to the solicitor general, whose name I'll tell you in a moment, and said, he said, I don't want any part of this. And they said, you have to stay as acting attorney general. The Department of Justice and the country relies on continuity and leadership. You have to stay. We beg you to stay. We will do whatever we can to cover you to let you stay. He stayed. His name, Robert Bork. He was ripped apart when he was nominated for uh, a Supreme Court Justice Court for that and other sins where he he was willing to be the 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 good American to follow a legal presidential order, although politically disastrous uh, for for him, which he I think even sensed at the time. Jenny uh, Scrap. Just a really quick follow up. American Bar Association put out a publication um, this past year. It was the anniversary of, of Watergate, and they they wrote a very lengthy article about lawyers and how much we learned from Watergate and how much we learned from, from the October Massacre. And all I kept thinking when I was reading this article was. No, I don't think we learned a heck of a lot because I'm looking at those um, memos that were written for the torture. And at some point in time, when did we as lawyers start bending the will? Sort of what happened about 40 years ago. I mean, we should stop tapping ourselves on the back and saying we're doing a great job. It's also worth worth noting that as a lawyer, because I tell you murder is legal does not make it so. That at a certain point, still the client has to have a little responsibility here too. Yes, lawyers can be disbarred, and and John, you, I, 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 I think that there was actually some serious questions uh, that several bar associations actually did take up. They ended up not doing anything. <laughs> but th- just because a lawyer speaks does not make it so. And if your client just wants a yes man, then that's a problem there as well. Well, well, well but, go ahead, Bob Hines. One, talking about going back all the way back to Watergate, and I'm reminded of of a great truth. Something happens at day one. If you go down the years, people forget. People forget. And they make the same stupid mistakes. And it's just human nature because we, we don't remember how bad it was and how big the problem was and so we can But this goes I mean this intelligence report Bob goes a lot deeper. I mean you're talking about literally in according to the report that I've read uh that 
CIA officials kept certain members of the cabinet, including at the time Secretary of State Colin Powell, including at the time Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, out of the loop on this because in one quote, Secretary Powell, had he found out about it, would have quote-unquote blown his top about the fact that CIA operatives were using enhanced uh, uh, interrogation techniques as a part of interrogation protocol. You're talking about literally keeping your two top cabinet officials in state in defense out of a very sensitive situation. And wasn't that doesn't that tell you something that the system broke down because why weren't they told? Who didn't tell them? Was there someone who said don't tell them? What? But the point is the system breaks down in, in times of crisis like this, people start covering their butts. Alan, you have cover from the White House. Alan, right. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, this raises a whole different set of questions. Everybody in government doesn't know everything. If the CIA is involved with this, with uh, with carrying this out, if people in the Justice Department are providing the legal cover and the White House is providing the political cover, there's no reason that you have to tell the Secretary of State or, or the, the Secretary, Secretary of Defense. Defense. Now, the fact that you don't is something, as a decision you make consciously, you got to be aware that you could have some kind of an explosion, but it's not as though everybody gets to hear everything. And uh, the, the thing that, that there's a thing that really troubles me about the report itself and, and the apparent conclusions. We can't agree on the facts. There are people who would walk over hot coals to say, we didn't learn anything useful. That's the guys who wrote the report. And we have people at the CIA who said, we learned intelligence that was critically important to catching Osama bin Laden and to heading off other events. It blows my mind that people who have access to the same body of information disagree on that. What does that that tell you? As a former Senate staffer, when you see that kind of disparity in the accounts given by the Senate report and by those who were interviewed as part of the collection of information for the report, what does that tell you? It tells me that we weren't ready to 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 release the, the report. Um, one can one one can one can hold on hold on let Alan finish hold on let Alan finish let Alan finish. What you need is to is to bring more than the Senate side that the Democratic side of the Senate into a report that that gets released. They should there should be closer agreement on the facts. They can have fundamental disagreements on the important question of whether it was legal, whether we should have and could have, whether we should have done it and whether we should ever do it again. But, but the facts being in such fundamental dispute intrigue me and it suggests that somebody needed – my understanding of the Senate report, for example, is that they never interviewed the most senior people at the CIA. Well, why was that? Was it because they refused to participate or they said, we've, we've got the people that were upper level, mid-level, that's good enough? I don't know. Somehow you needed to bring the, and I'm not saying this is easy, and the breach occurred years ago, you somehow need to bring Republicans into that loop 
Not that it's easy. If you are going to make a, if you're going to issue a report that has such potential in significant political ramifications. But I, I mean, understood. But I'm, I'm going to talk uh, very graphically about a couple of key points that were brought out as far as the type of enhanced techniques that were utilized. Uh, this is some of this could be disturbing language, and I apologize, but. When you look at, for example, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, what, what they did to Khalid, what they did to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, according to the report, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was exposed to um, technique of a series of near drownings as part of the waterboarding techniques. Uh, they um, the, the records include, or the records according to this report and according to information given by CIA officials that were interviewed as part of this report, quote, CIA records indicate that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, no, otherwise known as KSM in the report, was subjected to waterboarding interrogation, interrogation technique at least 183 times as part of this enhanced interrogation. Uh, you're talking about stuff that uh, they talk about rough takedowns. They talk about one instance uh, where they, they use uh, hanging. A U.S. military legal advisor observed, and this is a quote from the report, a U.S. military legal advisor observed the technique known as hanging involving handcuffing one or both wrists to an overhead horizontal bar. The legal advisor noted that one day one detainee was apparently left hanging for 22 hours each day for two consecutive days to break his resistance. Those are those are shocking accounts of enhanced interrogation techniques. However, there are there are those in the intelligence community that would argue that that is minor compared to the level of destruction that these people were involved in on 9/11. The the level of 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 murder, chaos, and, and, and just uh, senseless death that these people portrayed against Americans, not just in 9-11, but even since then. The bigger question now that we look at this is, and Bob, I want to start with you. As, as somebody who's been around Washington a long time, we deal a lot with the fine line. There's a huge fine line about, look, we've got to get this actionable intelligence through any mechanism in order to protect American lives, but at what point do we say we've crossed that line? Well, number one, I, you know, it's, it's hard to give you a hard answer for a very simple reason. Consider the consider the, the, the few months after 9/11. I don't think there are very many people in the United States at that point who wouldn't say do whatever you have to do to find out who these people are, where they are, how do we Even if it means doing what you have to do could save thousands of American lives? Yeah. You, well, that's the point. You've got to be saying. Yeah. You're saying. Right, do, do right, 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 yeah. right, right. Now, you know, now that, that is the kind of an, an immediate emotional response of the average American person. My God, you got to protect us. And I understand that. But there has to be a line. Uh, it is clear to me that... At the time, there were too many people, somewhat out of control, clearly, 
and there were, were, were but now, now wait a minute were they out of control well let me put it this way except under the most horrendous situations i think anybody would say that some of the things that were probably done and i guess were done we would we would recoil from under normal circumstances it, it's it's a very difficult problem denise crap i don't know the answer no I, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree. Um, I was wearing uniform on 9-11, and I did not put that uniform on to allow some an American to torture somebody else. There were a lot of people that were killed that day, and I knew several of them. I knew several that died subsequently. But I cannot say with a straight face that those that died would support some of the information that has come out. It is it violates the Geneva Convention. It violates so but many But you're talking about people, Denise, that did not adhere to the Geneva Convention and, and what, what, in their jihadist war. Justin. Not too it it's not and I I struggle with what we have done. We are going to pay a price. We are going to pay a nasty price. And by we, I'm not talking the CIA, thank you, boys. I'm talking about the men and women who are in uniform because they now have a target on their back. I mean, we've been at war for 13 years. They've been shot at. But because of what the CIA did and then tried to cover up, and I'm glad to see that John McCain has come out and said that report needs to come out and be transparent, they have a target on their back because it's somebody who got out of control. Dan Lipner? There were, there were a few stories that came out after uh, the first Iraq war, uh, one of which was the, the Iraqi soldiers that would, were just instantly surrendering. Um, while I'm not equating al-Qaeda or the Taliban to uh, the Iraqi army, it is worth noting that part of the reason soldiers were so free to surrender to U.S. forces is because they believed, and at the time it was true, they would be treated well. They would be treated under the Geneva Conventions. They would be they would be treated as human beings while still combatants. They would be treated and respected as humans. This tarnish, as to Denise's point, is something that is going to be long lived, and it's going to be long lived not just for the next few weeks, for the next few decades. This is now how America is viewed. Not as, the, not as the great saviors, the great liberators, but apparently when you enter our custody, there's a good chance you can be tortured. That is troubling, and I don't think any of us here want the United States to be viewed that Carl, way. Hold on. Carl Tubin. Well, a lot of what I was going to say has been said, but, you know, <clears throat> I remember over the years after 9-11, there were reports that came out of how much information they were getting and how this information helped us um, in Osama bin Laden and, and, and going after other people and, and because we knew some of the plans. And also, it helped us in this country in containing attacks that might have happened had we not done some of this. Now, I'm not condoning this. I think it's, it's a real embarrassment. Um, I am sorry, very sorry, that in the Intelligence Committee, 
there couldn't have been some Republicans that joined in to, to, to make this a bipartisan situation. And I think that that was um, a mistake on Senator Feinstein's um, um, self and staff for not trying to pull this together as a bipartisan situation. Alan Moore. Yeah, I want to challenge the proposition that a bunch of potential prisoners came forward thinking they were going to get humane treatment, and now in the future they'll never come forward because they'll think they'd be tortured. I mean, this is the kind of disproportionate, I th- I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident, erroneous comment that, that can take us down the wrong path. First of all, three people were waterboarded. One guy, apparently 180 times. I mean, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the man, the guy who we knew knew a lot of stuff. Did the waterboarding work on him? There's a dis- there's a dispute about that. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And then there were two others that are acknowledged to have been waterboarded. And then there were some of these really ag- ag- aggressive techniques were used on very small groups of people, very small numbers. That doesn't say it's it, then it's okay. I'm just trying to provide some perspective. The people against whom the the techniques were being applied were people we really, really, really wanted because we thought they had good information. And some people we got in erroneously and no doubt subjected to 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 to, to some serious unpleasant things, not including waterboarding. Um, but but the notion that somehow large groups of people who would have been like in the Iraq army and and therefore potentially um, uh, clearly included under the Geneva Conventions would never come forward now, I think is absurd. I think that 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 we were out looking for guys and we there were a there were somewhere between ninety eight and one hundred and nineteen people that that we're really talking about who had something occurring to them. I don't believe that 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 fact is going to play that that some of them some number maybe all of them for all I know had some kind of uh, challenging unpleasant potentially uh, uh, torturous treatment is 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 going to linger on in the future and cause people to what not get caught this was not about people who gave themselves up this was about people that we had to go out and find and then decide what to do with. Dan Lipner, I need to clarify something. Not that I'm suggesting that everyone will be tortured in the future. And <laughs> what I'm saying is that taint that is now out there. And when you're talking about combatants in the third world, I somehow doubt they're thinking, well, I wasn't one of the most important people that are that they're really going to care about. Instead, and this is propaganda 101. You take something and you blow it out of proportion. You say, this is what the Americans will do to you. And you, create, you can create fighters and create, create a position in somebody's mind that can make things more dangerous for Americans out there on the battlefield. But, it, but, it, but, it, but it's straight, it, the suggestion was made yeah. that people before thought, oh, I'll be fine if I'm caught because they'll treat me well. Nonsense. They surrendered to Nonsense. a group from CNN. Wait, you're they're talking. Wait a minute. First of all, first of all, <laughs> let, let's let's get something clear. You're talking about Iraqi palace guard officers 
in the middle of a desert during a completely different time in a completely different war front. That, that's apples and oranges. You're talking about cold-blooded jihadists who decide to go non-uniform combative and, and, and affect methods of terrorism and murder versus declared war. Ask, you cannot compare. I actually to, do. You think? I, I absolutely let me ask you a question. Do you World think? Let me, hold on. Let me ask you this question. Do you think, for a second, that those folks that affected 9/11 and even today with ISIS, do you honestly believe that they are taking into account when they either blow up children and women and innocents or take the head? of non-combative journalists that they're thinking about the Geneva Convention? Well, two parts of this. One, I'm literally not even going to confront the second half of that because we are simply better than them. So the idea that I'm going to compare it's not a matter their of better than them, our man. motivations, this I'm not, I'm not, not even going to this is What not I am matter, going to say is this at the is end, not at a the matter end, of, at the end of World them. War II, in both the European theater different, and in the different let me time. finish my point. At the at the end of World War II, both the Asian theater and the European theater, everyone knew you wanted to surrender to the Allies as opposed to the Russian forces because they knew you would be treated much much better if you surrendered to the Allies. And I'm saying that same tarnish has affected that tarnish of this issue has affected that exact same issue. For future combat. Dan, with all the nonsense, the, that is, I, I absolutely agree. Who are they I going to agree. confess? Who are they going to give up to? Who are they going to give up to? Hold on, hold on. After World War II, we did something incredible. We, we we held the Nuremberg trials, and we held the Nuremberg trials because we wanted to litigate. And we didn't want to simply hang. Trust me, we could have hung all of them. Wouldn't have taken a lot of rope. They would have been dead. But we didn't hang all of the Nazis, and we wanted to hold them accountable. And we did so because we wanted to create legal precedent and say, you know, these are the standards. It, it was built off but of Denise, what happened in World War you're I an and attorney. World War II. Denise, you're an attorney. I understand that. You're okay. talking about uniform national combatants that specifically fall under the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention does not cover terrorists. The Geneva, the Geneva Convention, Convention does Britain. not yes. cover terrorists. You were talking that, about we knew who the, the but we were we knew who the enemy was. They were in uniformed, sanctioned armies and defense forces and the of these countries. And we go against somebody for torturing their citizens, they're going to look at us and go, "Thank you very much. Let's talk about your CIA torture report." So please, United States government, let's not go back and talk about anybody else and their torture Alan, regime because they're just now looking at us. Alan Moore. I'm conjuring up the, this image of, of, of some ISIS troops being trapped. And they can either go north to give up to the Kurds or, or east, surrender east to give up to the Iraqis or to, or to give up to the, the small group of American advisors. Gee, I wonder which direction they might turn in for the most humane treatment. No, that's, that, that's a false equivalency, because I'm going to point to a different direction. We have a nice little monument to the Marines at the Iwo Jima Memorial. And part of the reason that that monument is there celebrating the, the, the battles they fought on that island is because they could not believe how far and how long and to what ends the Japanese soldiers were willing to fight. Now, 
it is possible that we've just created more people willing to fight to those same ends, making it more dangerous to the Americans that have to fight. Dan, I'm going to disagree with you because let me be clear about something. It did not take this report to get jihadists who swear death against America to get them to go over the top and say, now I want to go kill Americans. So are you honestly suggesting that any actions the United States has done has, has not done anything to improve the recruiting efforts of jihadists around the nation? Are you honestly suggesting that? That no action we take helps prompt we, some we of the we're not talking about yeah. recruitment. Where you were, you were making the point about who would want to quit or give up and never come to an American now, as opposed to some other combatant in the in the field of battle. That that was my only point. That I was just sort of intrigued with this idea that an ISIS person might go to the Kurds and say, "Would you take me in? Because I'm so afraid of those Americans and what they might do." Carl Tubin. Yes, the He raises a very good point because. Um, <clears throat> these people don't need, as we've seen, some of these people don't need very much to try to go to Europe, to Syria, to fight with these folks. And now when they see this, and some of the religious leaders have been subjected to these kinds of things, there could be a, a wave of people who all of a sudden decide, this is no good. I'm going to go and I'm going to fight for these people and I'm going to fight against my own country. Well, apparently the FBI is thinking the same thing, possibly. Breaking news on CNN. According to CNN, the FBI has officially stated that the release of the report may spark terrorist threats and have gone on a heightened sense of alert down at the Hoover building. Uh, but th- that being said, we're, we're, we're going to keep an eye on this, and obviously we'll report any breaking news that comes while we're on the air. But uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Jesus, really? No government buildings north. No government buildings north. <laughs> <laughs> you should see how close we are to the FBI building. We're like two blocks from the White House. three blocks from the White House and Treasury. Uh, when we come back, when we, when we, can I do my job here, please? Thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk about the New York City grand jury decision last week to not indict uh, officers involved in the uh, Gardner uh, choking hold case and the fallout from that. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes and 19 seconds. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? 
Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to talk about last week's uh, grand jury decision to not indict uh, at least one, if not at most five officers involved in Mr. Garner's, uh, Mr. Garner's death on Staten Island. For those of you who have not seen the video or heard the news, uh, a... Um, a uh, resident of Staten Island who was a father, a, a husband, was uh, approached by police officers. He, uh, according to law enforcement and as viewed on tape, one could construe that he did effectively resist arrest in some instances with violence. However, a, uh, a physical struggle ensued, in which case a chokehold was placed on one of the re- responding officers uh, Mr. Gardner uh, was then taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Uh, a grand jury heard the testimony, heard the case, and in a decision last week, the grand jury decided to not indict any of the officers involved with this death on Staten Island. Uh, it has since sparked many, many protests in several large cities, including Washington, D.C., New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, L.A., San Francisco, and even St. Louis. Uh, it is uh, it is obviously something that has sparked a larger debate of do we in fact have a racial problem here in, in, in America and why is there a huge distrust of police officers? According to a uh, Marist poll that was taken recently, when asked, you know, how strongly do you mistrust police? White Americans that were polled in this Marist uh, evolution, 29% felt that they strongly distrust the police and their uh, enforcement powers. 81% of African Americans distrust police and their abilities to enforce the law. That is a telling sign. We're not going to get into you know what the mindset of an African American is, what the mindset of, but it does bring up the larger question: 
And I'll start with Dan Lipner. Dan, we're talking about a very delicate situation where the ability for the police officers to, in fact, enforce the law, have people obey lawful orders, but that fine line of when it goes too far, is this, in fact, a racial issue or is this, in fact, just a law enforcement a, a law enforcement issue that, as you stated last week, as I do fight, but I will put on my my moderator hat this time, is, is it a matter that police just need to be trained in more effective techniques to have suspects comply with lawful orders? Uh, I think Mayor de Blasio has made some very good points on this, that police training is part of it. Um, I am far from an expert on this topic, but from, there, there have been some studies out there talking about how much police training goes into resolving situations violently um, compared to what percentage of their actual work is actually talking, to, finding ways to de-escalate situations. Um, that's part of it. But in addition to that, also looking into the grand jury issue. Um, you, uh, well, hold off on that because I want I want to talk okay. about that in, in a second, though. But in in this case, Denise Krepp, uh his own police commissioner, uh, Commissioner Bill Black Bratton, who was also chief of police during the L.A. riots, post uh, Rodney King, post O.J. Simpson, uh, even uh, a progressive police commissioner as Bratton, thought that Mayor De Blasio, in his comments after the grand jury in fact, threw his own department under the bus by coming out negatively against the actions of his own police department without, in fact, knowing all of the situation or all the grand jury testimony. Well, Is that, I mean, it, that doesn't seem unfair, though. Justin, you know, my daughters watched the video that night when it came out, and I, you know, I, I was a six-year-old who said, Mommy, isn't he saying he can't breathe? And he said, yes. And he said, well, but why aren't they letting him get up? Why aren't they letting him sit up? So if I can't explain to a six-year-old why they aren't loosening the grip that they had around that man's neck, then I kind of think the Blasio was right. There are some there are some problems, and it's not throwing it under the bus. If if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you got problems. Alan Moore was was did De Blasio throw his own department under the bus? You know, I've I've his, I've listened to his remark. I've I've seen the police response. I don't think he was trying to throw them under the bus. He knows he's got a, one of the most diverse and best trained, best operating police forces in the country. Having said that, I think he's simply trying to acknowledge the obvious, that race still creeps into the behavior of police, um, not just white police, but even but police of color as well towards, in particular, people of color. Um, it, it, is it as bad in New York as it is elsewhere? Oh my gosh, no. They're going to go through some, some required additional training uh, on this issue. When I, when I saw it, I was not, not, I was expecting to think, wow, that mayor really did toss the folks it didn't strike me that way when I when I heard it, but I don't. It, it doesn't make sense either that he's you know he's he's not completely crazy. He he doesn't want to he doesn't want to. Oh, there's a lot of police officers in New York that'll disagree well, with you. But he doesn't want to he doesn't want to totally throw his folks under the bus at all. But he also 
you know, he's he's married to an African American woman. He's got mixed race children. He's a he's a he's a white father who has had to give advice to his African American son, the sort of advice that African American fathers are used to giving, which is a different set of rules of the road for what you need to do and not do when you're out in the street. So here's a man who 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 uh, walks the walk. And uh, I think tries to be careful how he how he talks the talk, and you're never going to get it 100 percent right. But it, but it, it, it surprises me though, uh, Bob Hines. You know, we we look at, you know, we we talked about the black divide with law enforcement, uh, and it and it it almost seems like in some instances that this is a Midwest East Coast issue, where you look at. Uh, cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, where a lot of your major community minorities aren't so much African American as they are Latino, and there's almost a certain fear that comes with the police as they deal with Latinos, i.e., with your your gangs, your Crips, your Bloods, your Latin Kings, etc. Why why is it that you think that the, that the American focus is on black versus blue as opposed to Community versus blue. Well, I don't know that it's it's we're focused on blacks versus white. Uh, I mean, it it depends on the community. I mean, if you have a, if, if in, in the West Coast you have you have a different minority community than you have, let's say, on the East Coast. Or I grew up in Cincinnati, and I remember uh, uh, shortly after I left the city, I guess it was back in the early '60s. I mean, the uh, they had a terrible problem uh, with some real uh, deaths of some uh, some black citizens, and the, uh, the, uh, the the police force was practically decimated, and it was a real serious problem. We've had other problems in Ohio. Cleveland has had some serious problems, very serious problems. I mean, you know, I think fundamentally that what we need, uh, the most important thing we need to do is be able to 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 make sure that our police forces are as well educated as possible in the way to handle a variety of situations. And I think they probably need to be uh, uh, every few years reminded. I mean, it's a real problem. And I, the police have a terrible problem. Obviously, there are there are a lot of bad guys running around causing trouble. And uh, but uh, you know but just because you see a bunch of kids, you can't suddenly discover well, those are the worst people. You got to stop them from doing something. Dan Lipner. Well, and that's also been part of my question as watching both the response from police organizations, either through their professional organizations or through their associations, through their spokespeople, that consistently they come out in defense of their membership, and I understand that to a certain extent. What I don't understand is where the voices in the in the law enforcement community saying we want to drum out the bad cops, very publicly saying there are things going wrong. Because it seems to me, and I could be mistaken here, they they are behaving more like a fraternity defending their membership rather than a professional organization trying to defend their profession. And I find that problematic. Well, we know there are bad cops. There, but there they are few and far between. I suspect, but but they still have to be re removed. Absolutely, and it'd be, it would be more comfortable to talk about this if there was more evidence 
of the, the police departments, police associations taking aggressive efforts to get rid of the bad cops instead of circling rakes to, to defend in those in these but Dan, what, 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 as a matter of fact, what it would be great thing to see is that police leadership all over the country started talking about the need to make sure that all their uh, all their members are well uh, trained, have been uh, you know who who, are, who understand the situation, understand how they have to operate, and be more public about about doing it, so that the public would begin to feel that the professional police forces all through the country are being more sensitive to I, I want to go back I want to go back to something that Dan said. Dan you, you, you talked about the professional organizations like the Fraternal Order of Police, the Police Benevolence Association, the Union Police Unions, etc. that do come out and, and defend the actions of their membership and, and their membership consists of not just white American officers, you're talking about African American officers, Latino officers, Asian officers, gay and lesbian officers. You're talking about in some cities, uh, transgender officers. Uh, it, it, they represent all the officers, and the voice seems to be consistent. It, it's worth noting that not for a sec. I'm not for a second suggesting it's a black white issue. I'm suggesting it's a blue black issue or a blue Latino issue. That law enforcement is certainly ranks to to defend themselves and. I, they should be celebrated for the fact for welcoming in diversity within their ranks. I am fine with that. I find it problematic that they're def that the first move is to defend their ranks, seemingly no matter what the issue at. Alan Moore. Yeah, I obviously I don't have a, a history in law enforcement, but it, it but my speculation here, and and Justin, I would look for your response in particular, is that much as we like to think that there's good cops and bad cops. There's mostly gray cops, that the best cop has, has on occasion, um, got, gone up close to the line and maybe crossed over. And then if you do it once in your life, once a year, once a month, are, does, are you a good cop or a bad cop? And if you're most, if you're, what's a bad cop? Somebody who has to do every single solitary thing bad? No, probably not. It means that that there are times when he does things that are horrible, and then most of the time he, and I'm saying he, but it could be she, although if you're talking bad cops, I guess I'll show my bias and guess that most of the bad cops are male, um, but who knows, um, that, that it's not a simple matter of saying, well, everybody knows that these 3% these are the bad cops, and everybody else is good, that there might be some people that, that most people would say he's a bad one, and I'd love to think that if if, ever, if if lots of people agree that you could get that one out of there. But it's this huge gray area where the guy who does bad something here might have had you know problems at home, moves up to the edge at, from time to time, is a little violent, had was hungover, something happened, and so they all know that they're all potentially. Uh, at, at, at the edge of, of dropping over the line, they all feel like they're, they're targets, that their lives are on the line, they perform amazing but underappreciated service. So I think that, that the answer lies somewhere in that, that realm of, of human relationships. I, 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 would, I would, in response to your question and, and looking at me for the answer, I, 
it, it is it is tough for me to say that law enforcement into itself is a gray area. It is a matter of an you're taking an individual officer or a or a group of officers basically making judgment calls on the enforcement of the laws that they are sworn to uphold. You know, it's no you know is the is the officer that lets you go off on a verbal for speeding a bad cop? Is the is the guy who sees a bunch of guys pushing each other and getting into a fight who separates them? Obviously, assaults occurred, but says you two separate, you two go home, you two go do this. I don't want to see you anymore. Is he because he did not arrest either or both those individuals? Is he a bad cop? It that that's a tough, tough, you know, that's a tough area, and that's something that police officers deal with every day. So you know, when you say that you know cops aren't good cops, bad cops, there is a lot of gray in law enforcement. Dan Lipner. Well, I'd like to pose a more direct question because Staten Island has some other facts at play that that Ferguson did not. And I believe there are four or five police officers, I think it was five, actually present for Correct. the takedown. Now, we know that the chokehold is, is not illegal to be against the rules in New York. Um, my question is, the other four police that were not choking this guy, if you were one of the other four cops, not suggesting you had done the chokehold, Sworn to uphold the law, and there actually have been cases, there's been plenty of police video of police misbehaving recently, and in one case of a police officer punching a handcuffed uh, criminal, or uh, in the suspect. face, suspect, suspect. Sorry, uh, a, a handcuffed suspect, and his partner stopping him. My question is, why didn't those other four police try and stop him? And it, 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 when the police have where you have almost, actually not almost, pretty much no right of self-defense against a police officer behaving badly. If you can't look to the other four police who, even in the gray world, to step up and defend you, what do you do? And and what do you do as well, one let, of the let, other... Let me, let me, I'll, I'll, respond to, I'll, I'll respond to that because, you know, that, that's a tough situation. I mean, when you know, when I when I look at the, the Garner... Uh, when, when I look at them interrogating and stopping... Uh, Mr. Gardner, uh, I see it differently. What I see is officers approaching a suspect who has been, who they've gotten a complaint about violating the law. They approach him to go investigate the complaint. When Mr. Gardner, when Mr. Gardner becomes agitated, and they say, "Sir, please calm down. Sir, don't get excited. We're just investigating." And he goes, I'm sick of it, I'm sick of it, and, they, and there's no resolution to it. The second they go to say, sir, please put your hands up against the wall, you're, you're, you know, you're under arrest for hindering an investigation, or whatever that charge might have been, he says, get your hands off me, swaps them, swats them away. So right there, you then have a situation where that is now resisting arrest with violence, which is a Class C felony in New York. You then have a situation where multiple times they try to effect an arrest by cuffing this individual, and each time they attempted to cuff the individual slightly peacefully, 
he becomes more agitated, more physical, at that time they made the judgment call to get more aggressive. Now, did they get overly aggressive? Yes, they did. I did not like seeing that video. I think had they had tasers, they could have tased him. Whoa. They get, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean, whoa, 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 whoa? You're, you're, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, but it, 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 the way in which you're explaining this, and it is a very detailed explanation, you think this was going on for maybe two or three minutes. But when you look at the video, though, that happened in about 20, 30 seconds. No, that, no, no. What I explained to you is exactly what that video shows. Right. No, the but, entire video shows officers approaching Mr. Garner mm -hmm. and asking him questions when he becomes agitated and after repeated verbal attempts to, to de-escalate the situation and when they attempt to effect an arrest for him hindering their lawful orders and hindering investigation, he then becomes more agitated and decides to get physical. Yes. And Justin, when you look at him on the ground with at least one cop, I think he's sitting on his legs, another one's got his thighs, and the third one's has got his, you know, hand around him. If you can't breathe, my guess is you're probably gonna become a little more agitated. You know, the reality the reality is if you've got one agitated, difficult person and you've got five police officers, I mean, to me there is no rational discussion about Gee, this guy got what happened. He, he, this is not our problem. I mean, he he couldn't move. He had he had he had a guy for every limb. He's he's got he's got four guys, so he grabbed both legs and both arms, and the fifth guy's choking him. Now that's not acceptable. Period. There is no reason. There is unless the guy had an atomic bomb on him, he was going to blow the world up. There's no reason for them to to do what they did. Carl Tubin. The other, there are a couple of things. Number one, when I looked, I, I looked at, well, we've all looked at this thing several times. There was one policeman who I thought had his arm around the uh, fellow that was had the chokehold, and I almost thought that he was trying to pull him back. You know, nobody had seen it that way. The other thing that it puzzles me if you've got someone who says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I don't give a damn who you are. You get on your, your phone, you call uh, for for everything. Well, let me let me throw one technicality. Let me throw one let me throw one technicality in there, okay? If you're saying multiple times I can't breathe, I can't breathe, you can breathe. Is it, is it, Denise, don't? Uh, no, 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 There's an NYPD, there's an NYPD report or advisory on dealing with large overweight suspects that specifically when you lay them down and you're on top of them, it hinders breathing. Correct. But no, it, it hinders, it hinders breathing. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not defending the cops, but they, you, but the, the problem is when, when people see the video, they automatically believe that this is a guy who had all oxygen cut off to him, could not technically breathe. And and the reality is now that was his was his breathing hindered by their actions? Absolutely. Should they have stopped at a certain point? I think they should have. Is he absolutely. Dead because of their actions? Is absolutely. He, is, is, he, is, he, is he but 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 again, let me be clear on this. Had Mr. Garner obeyed the initial lawful orders and allowed the police to at least, chances are the cops would have seen him selling cigarettes untaxed, which is illegal, and said, look, 
Get out of here. If he had done that, Mr. Garner would still be alive today. Whoa, 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 whoa. The, the, the misdemeanor of selling cigarettes. Yeah, again, it's a misdemeanor of selling cigarettes. Instead, you had five so, cops sitting on this So are all misdemeanors not against the law? Okay, so, wait, come on. Look, I wish that's that that someone had been charged whether it was the guy who applied and i'm going to call it a hammerlock okay i think that the chokehold what i understand the chokehold though is typically if you use your stick up against somebody's neck but but i'm obviously not aware it was it was impeding his breathing for you to say well he can breathe because he can speak is like saying Oh, he should have said, I'm having trouble breathing, guys, rather than, I can't breathe. He was really having horrible trouble breathing. He should not have resisted, no question. And the fact that he did cause these guys to jump in, one guy to do something that appears to violate NYPD policy, not the law. So he didn't break the law by putting him in the hold. He did he was in violation of the of the, the police policy which, which, which by the needs, way which means that the police department needs to to sanction him but i'm hoping we're not done on the legal side because somebody needed to be charged for at least some kind of uh, uh, negligent activity that contributed to manslaughter i want to hear from this grand jury you know in the case of ferguson i was i was perfectly willing to believe that there were multiple voices with multiple impressions from eyewitnesses about what actually happened. And I was very sympathetic to the challenge of trying to, to come to a particular conclusion on an indictment. And, and, and we, we got to see all of this grand jury stuff. In the case of Staten Island and Eric Garner, it's different. We've got film. We watched what happened. I don't dispute that this this guy should have obeyed. And parents, tell your kids to obey a policeman, even if you don't respect them, because they can harm you. They can even cause your death, depending. But but in, 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 in this particular case, the cops not only, you know, things escalated, so I can understand why they jump him and then try to hold him down. When he's saying, I can't breathe, and then when they see that he's suddenly stopped breathing and they're all standing around waiting for an ambulance, there's a whole kind of negligent, indifferent behavior that's really, really troubling. Well, this brings up this brings up a bigger question. Well, this brings up, hold on, hold on, hold on. This brings up a bigger question. So, yeah, he can't breathe, and then he's down there hurting, and why isn't anybody doing anything? Well, even, even when EMS arrives, there is no first aid being provided. Right. Nothing. And, and, and the guy who had the, the whatever, chokehold, whatever you want to call yep. it, he, he's sitting there smiling, waving at the TV camera. Which, which all combine lends a great deal of weight to one of the protest slogans that's been said, Black Lives Matter. And seemingly everyone present for this man, be, it's one thing, yes, he was breaking the law, it was a misdemeanor, there are plenty of arguments that he could have simply been cited and told to go he home. He would have been cited. I he, mean, would have given us, he would have been given a citation to appear. So that being said, everyone standing around, five police officers, and I suspect more arrived after that, in addition to EMS, 
with no Herculean efforts being taken to save this man's life. But this brings up a bigger question that you pointed out, though. We don't know what was said in the grand jury hearing room on this case, which has led a lot of people saying that our grand jury system is, in fact, now obsolete, flawed, and should be changed. But dealing with cops, the answer is yes. Why? Then how do you fix it? Are, are, is the law not equal to everybody in this case? Why, why are police so special in the grand jury room? I've seen cops get convicted and indicted on crimes. For, for the same reason that you had such issues answering my question, because oh. about if you, were one, if you were one of the police present when one of, your, one of your brothers in blue was doing something you thought was wrong, how would you act? For that, oh, I would tell them. I would absolutely tell him. Yes, but telling him and stopping him are two different things. And in this case, you're talking about somebody's livelihood, somebody's family, somebody that you know. And the DAs work very closely with the police. And but I think the so only I think the that, only way to wait, wait, but how is, is it how is it that how is it that DAs in this nation have used the grand jury system to indict law enforcement officers on a daily basis in this country? And have them go to trial and be convicted and serve time for their crimes. Why is Staten Island so different? And I, I and I, I, I would guess that those cases were so egregious that it was politically, and I will use the P word again, politically impossible not to go forward. And I don't see how this case isn't one of those. <laughs> Look, I, it, it, you're, you're suggesting that in most cases. The, the elected DA is going to be in the tank for the police. I don't accept that. I don't think you can Nor say... Nor do I. Except when, it's, except when it's so egregious. Is there a conflict of interest? Oftentimes there is. This is a, a, a really interesting question. And I think that... I think that... I think that... There has to be a lot of thought given to whether there's a better way to deal with the potential charges against police without simply saying, yes, heretofore, no DA Well, let me, ever let me put, this, let me put to you this way. Let, let, there's one, there's one piece of information that, 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 that nobody reports on, is that the city of New York has, anytime there is a death, or a, an accusation of excessive use of force, that along with the fact that the grand jury gets it and they have the decision to indict or not, that the city of New York has a commissioned citizens review board uh, operating independently under the mayor's office to review these cases and issue opinion on those cases under themselves. We don't hear about that. There are mechanisms out there. There are ways for them to do it. And, 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 and the idea that there's a conflict of interest between the district attorney's office, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen cops go in front of a DA and say, look, we got a case. And they say, absolutely, you don't have a case. Or, you know, officer, I'm about five seconds away from throwing an indictment on your rear end. And they go, fine, come and get me. Come and get me. I'll, I'll, I'll defend my case all day long. Bob Hines. Given what you just said, I cannot imagine how when you've got three or four police officers on top of a guy, 
holding him down. Another guy's choke has a choke hold on him. He dies. I cannot imagine how anybody can say, any grand jury could possibly say, this is an indictment. Okay. I'm going to let that be the last word. I can't believe it. We're five minutes over break right now, and and there's another topic that I may push till next week. The the Rolling Stone issue is a huge issue. I want to give it the the amount of time it's due incredible, so we may just do a roundtable when we get back. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland Scotches, they've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here live in Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we want to talk about a disturbing situation that's happened over the past few weeks. Uh, it stems off of a Rolling Stone article that describes what one can only say is a disturbing pattern of sexual assault and cover-up and false allegations and, 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 and just bad behavior on college campuses, including the focal point of this article, which was uh, the University of Virginia. The case that, that stems from this, and Denise, I know you're very familiar with it, uh, in about 10 seconds, give us a quick synopsis of what, what happened in the Rolling Stone article. There was an individual um, statements were made that she may have been sexually assaulted by seven fraternity brothers. The university was uh, alleged to have covered it up, and the only reason that the public knew about it was because of the Rolling Stones. The problem, however, is the journalist that wrote this article didn't do her due diligence, and it's now created a bit of a problem for those who have been sexually assaulted, because now it's going to be even greater um, they have more difficulties in uh, filing their cases because people are going to say, "Well, are you telling the truth or are you lying?" So this brings up this brings up so many issues. But the biggest issue right now, and Denise, I'll, I'll divert to you on this, is, is the the backlash from the bad journalism conducted by, and it can be only called bad journalism, by this reporter and the response by Rolling Stone in their quote-unquote apology. They sent an apology out the first time that basically said, well, the hell to this source. She was bad to begin with. And then they came back and retracted that and said, well, no, 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 that's not what we meant. The, 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 the first question that comes to mind is, this seems like it's a huge huge blow to victims' rights, particularly in campus-based sexual assault. It is. It is a significant blow, and shame on the Rolling Stone, because they have admitted to basically going campus by campus to find their most, you know, sensational victim. Thank you very much. Rape is rape. It doesn't mean that it's seven-on-one, it's one-on-one. It's the fact that it actually happens. And again, you've made it much more difficult. And, you know, I have a problem with that. You know, Rolling Stone should have done more due diligence, and you've got a lot of people asking questions, and they're not the questions that should be asked right but, now. But it, when, the, when the article first came out, Denise, it, it, it was widely her, heralded as a true indicative expose on the situation of sexual assaults on campus right now, but it seems that all of the focus that it brought to this issue has now been blown to smithereens. It has been, and that's troubling to me because as chief counsel of a federal agency, I was responsible for a, a military institution where there were rapes. Um, we had several girls that were assaulted and raped, and we had no prosecutions because the girls wouldn't come forward. They wouldn't testify because they were afraid of retaliation. Alan, and they were afraid of their reputations being smeared. Alan Moore, you know, when we talk about such a lauded and heralded institution such as the University of Virginia, uh, one of the finest schools arguably in the country, uh, there's almost a, a a sense of we don't want to air our dirty laundry coming out of UVA. You in particular are very familiar with the culture and what's going on with college students down at UVA. 
So this is a, an issue that, that that comes very close to home for me. I have a, a step uh, stepdaughter of whom I'm very fond, who is in her second year uh, at UVA. She absolutely loves UVA. Um, we when when she first started there last year as freshmen, we're very impressed with the attention paid by the administration. The from the president on down, the president happens to be a a, a woman. Um, uh, uh, on the whole subject of sexual assault, how to protect yourselves, how to respect each other, how to behave properly, what to do if anything should happen. Jump forward to this year, and we have a, a student who's, who was also a second year from Northern Virginia, who lived uh, one floor above my stepdaughter, who, di was, who disappeared, Hannah Graham was her name, they 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 found some videotape. They arrested a guy who has now been charged with her murder. They subsequently found her body. I cannot tell you the trauma that all of the Hanagram activity had for students and the, the local community at at UVA. And as they're just beginning to realize that we think they they've charged this this perpetrator and feel fairly confident that he's the guy. Then we have the Rolling Stone article, which has these absolutely horrendous charges about behavior at a, at a particular fraternity and what, what happened to this girl who is identified in the story as Jackie. Now, it turns out that the events that she described almost certainly did not happen. It turns out that the friends that she talked to on the on the heels of something having happened um, didn't 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 hear what she now says and did not give her the advice that she claims that they gave. So the, the UVA this is an, a problem that is epidemic across the country. I don't think this blows the issue to smithereens. It's because. It's a setback, but many, many people came forward, and many people are now very interested in not saying, okay, Rolling Stone screwed up, and it was their editors who screwed up in letting the story appear in the first place and then in the way they first tried, tried to correct it. I, don't, I blame the editors more than the reporter, but it's, it's not really important. Rolling Stone hurt itself. UVA was hurt. A particular fraternity was, was hurt. And, the and, Greek community on campus was disbarred. Well, no, no. All, all, all that happened for the for the Greek community was that they said you you may not have any social activities until January. Everybody's still living in fraternity houses and sorority houses. In its in its final time, that was not a massive sanction at the house at the fraternity house. Um, Phi Kappa Psi, I think it's called. Right. There were bricks being thrown through windows, and the guys who lived there had to get out because right. they feared for their lives. And now it appears that whatever happened to Jackie did not happen at that location in the in the specific incidents. Uh, There's questions about her accuracy not, on the story. But, but it seems likely that something happened to her. And a lot of people have come forward at UVA and at campuses all over the country about things that have happened now or that happened when they were students. So I think that in an odd way um, that 
that there's there's going to be greater reporting and acknowledgement and activity, even as it was already being ramped up, including but, with with the involvement of our president. But Denise, but Denise, what Rolling Stone did mirrors a similar situation as to what happened down at Duke University and the Duke lacrosse team. And it it it, it, it strikes me, and 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 I'm not, I, I I absolutely am adamant about you know any sort of sexual violence against women it should be it should be prosecuted to the fullest extent however it seems that what happened in the duke lacrosse team situation with Tawana brawling and now you have this rolling stone article it then now becomes a very sensitive well who's really telling the truth and you have to almost, in some instances, if you're investigating this at a law enforcement or at a at a collegiate level, I hate the thought of having to look at a possible victim with a grain of salt to the credibility. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I, I, after uh, the Hanagram and after the UVA Rolling uh, Stone article, I, I started doing some digging because I, I was trying to figure out, you know. What are the rules on a university and what are the rules off of a university in reporting, for example? And that's what I found out um, uh, first, that the state attorney general here in Virginia appoints the lawyer for the uh, university. I didn't realize that. So that, that was very interesting to me. So I started digging and went, huh. So if you appoint the lawyer, your lawyers should have been the ones, for example, that notified you about the alleged assault that occurred at Christopher Newport, the individual who apparently killed Hannah Graham. So my question, and, and again, we start talking about process, is what now is the state liability? Because if you've appointed the lawyers, and I say this because I had a bifurcated chain of command when I was the chief counsel, and you've noticed the Attorney General. What's the Attorney General's responsibility now that he knows that there's been a sexual assault? What's he or she doing? Now, the second question I have is, if you know there are problems, and as a chief counsel, it is your responsibility to report to the Attorney General about what those problems are, what is he doing? third part about this is the Cleary reports. When you start talking about the Cleary Act, you've got to um, do all those annual reports on all the sexual assaults. Who reviewed all of those reports, and at what point in time did anybody bring in the lawyers and bring in the governors? Because you would have, because all of those attorneys, all of those but, universities but are, me, that are state funded. Let me go back. Let me go back to. My, but let me go back to my original question, though. We have a situation here. Bob Hines, you're an attorney. It, 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 it's, when you see a situation like what happened at Duke, what happened with Tawana Brawley, what happened at now, what we're finding out, the possibility of bad information, bad accusations at UVA, as, as somebody who's tasked to investigate some of this, it, it seems like that it, it almost damages the victim's right. Because in the back of your mind, you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, is this another Rolling Stone? Is this another Duke Lacrosse? How hard is it going to be to keep that out of your mind? The, the initial response of any prosecutor or any investigating officer 
where any college official is, we have an accusation of assault, a sexual assault may have occurred, we need to investigate this fully, but we've got to take our, our, our victim as at her word. Well, yes, you, what you do if you're a good lawyer, and I think most lawyers would try to be very honest about this, what you try to do is you start, you, you talk to the alleged victim, you talk to the people who are on the other side of the case, and you start to find out what's going on. And it's a slow process, it's a detailed process, and you have to make judgments as to who is telling the truth. The odds are, in these cases, you know, you know, people do not yell rape just to get known. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So you have to work on the theory that there's a serious question here. And you start looking at it, and you will, as you find evidence, you will be able to determine what your your your, your process is. And the next thing is an indictment. The reality is that, 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 that that's exactly how it has to be done, and it's a slow it's a slow process, but it has to be done that way. Denise Kraft. Look, the Rolling Stone article was bad for those of us that are trying to um, advocate on behalf of sexual assault victims. But there were two other things that happened last week. First, the Department of Defense came out with their sexual assault report, and as many people have said, you're doing better, but oh, by the way, the rates of retaliation are up, so don't congratulate yourself that quickly. The second part, and, and this was very interesting, is the Bill Cosby story. I mean, the, and, and, I, and I bring and, that... And, and we, I understand, but I, I want to focus in on this UVA situation. I understand what you're saying. The Bill Cosby situation is, is a nightmare. Um, and, 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 and it tarnishes Bill Cosby as well as bring sexual abuse up, up as, as a subject. But the reason why I want to focus in on UVA is because as, as, as somebody who has been on campus police, you know, the, the, immediate, the immediate gut instinct is to, if this victim... And by the way, there are male sexual abuse victims as well. This victim automatically should have credibility with me as to, you know, as long as their story seems consistent in the one or two interviews that we do on this. But it seems in this case, in the Rolling Stone incident, that there were several discrepancies that were brought out, and they now vilified, as a result of the initial release of the article, they vilified UVA for its failure to handle the situation. Well, first of all, let's remember that UVA is under federal investigation for sexual assault. By the as are over 90 other yeah, colleges and other 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 universities. They're not exactly clean in this world right now. But let's give some perspective so it's not like they're dirty and everybody else is clean. The, every, the, the, the 90 institutions that are under investigation have at least one case that has caused the the uh, Office of Civil Rights at Department of uh, but, Education to, to, to get involved. I think that... I want to bring up, before you go to there, I, I just want to bring up one big incident, though. There's, there's another case that's pending right now that brings up a similar UVA situation. That's the sexual assault case against the quarterback for 
the Florida State, no, Florida State University, Jameson. Jameson. Jameson's got a situation where he's still being investigated, but the original investigation shows that he was falsely accused. It's just another situation. That just muddies the water. Well, here's the thing. As, as, as Denise said at the outset, most of these cases are one against one person. It's he said, she said. Most of the schools now have special counselors that try to help guide women, and it's mostly women, who have who who were assaulted on what to do about it because they can they can go to the police and they cannot go to the police and it's really they, it, it's it's not cut and dry in most cases. What evidence do you have? What exactly happened? Who did you tell? What evidence might there be? If there's if if, if you if you have a rape kit that has extra evidence that can be helpful, but a lot of these assaults are aggressive sexual encounters where there wouldn't necessarily be uh, some of the evidence you might get in 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 a rape kit. That the the schools have to have zero tolerance. There's a role of alcohol in all of this, and there has to be. I think there's a presumption to believe the the accuser, and and then some realism about exactly how what your options are and how to move forward. People who say you should always report it to the police, I think, would have a chilling effect on women's willingness to come forward. The women need to to have responsible, grown-up advisors who can help them understand the options. And most schools, including UVA have a whole network of paid people as well as volunteers who try to help guide the the assault the assault the, the person assaulted on what their options are and how to make the best decision. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to let that be the last one. This is not going to be the last time we talk about this subject, unfortunately. But uh, with that, uh, we're, we've obviously blown through all our time. Huge subjects. Lot busy time here in, in our nation's capital on a lot of very sensitive subjects. Uh, we're not going to have time here for Tell Me a Story, but with that being said, on behalf of Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, uh, Dan Lipner, and uh, hopefully next week we'll have Congressman Al back at 100%. 90 seconds. Can't wait to see Congressman Al. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back live next week from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. You can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter, at BackroomPolitik, or you can email your questions, comments, and concerns, justin at backroompolitics.com. We will see you next week. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.